listener. Thanks for checking out this episode of the Mod Pod. We hope you're managing as best as you can during these trying times. The original premise behind this podcast was to enable you to access all of the content in each episode, even if you didn't have time to read it all. Now, even though you may actually have the time to read each issue cover to cover, maybe you'd like a little variety. The Mod Pod is here for you, so lend us your ears. Sit back, relax, or spin those pedals, or pound that pavement, or wash those clothes, or whatever you choose to do while listening, as Dr. Danica Morelli, Assistant Dean for Clinical Education and Director of Ocular Diagnostic and Medical Eye Service, both at the University of Houston College of Optometry, talks about glaucoma masqueraders. Elevated IOP, cupping of the optic nerve, or an abnormal visual field can raise suspicions of glaucoma. When all three findings occur together, there is strong evidence for this diagnosis. When all three findings are not present, the diagnosis is more challenging and clinicians must consider other etiologies that can masquerade as glaucoma. Elevated IOP is a strong risk factor for glaucoma, but not every patient with elevated IOP has or will develop the disease. It is estimated that between 4 and 7% of U.S. individuals over age 40 have ocular hypertension, defined as elevated IOP with a normal optic disc and visual field. Ocular hypertension is a relatively straightforward glaucoma masquerader based on evidence-based guidelines generated from the ocular hypertension treatment study. It has been nearly 20 years since the initial results of this large randomized clinical trial showed that treating ocular hypertension could reduce the five-year risk of developing glaucoma in patients with elevated IOP and normal discs and fields, but the vast majority of patients enrolled in the study did not reach a glaucoma endpoint. The OATS identified five risk factors for progression to glaucoma in patients with ocular hypertension, older age, higher IOP, thinner central corneal thickness, larger vertical cup-to-disc ratio, and higher pattern standard deviation on the visual field. By considering these risk factors, clinicians can categorize patients with ocular hypertension as low or high risk. Phase two of the OATS showed that persons who benefited the most from IOP lowering are those in the high-risk category. Patients at lower risk may be monitored with serial fundus examinations, visual field testing, and OCT. A hallmark of glaucoma is excavation or enlargement of the optic disc, referred to as cupping. The vast majority of pathologic cupping is caused by glaucoma. Disc cupping in the absence of elevated IOP may be caused by normal tension glaucoma, which accounts for 20 to 30 percent of open angle glaucoma. Conditions other than glaucoma that can cause cupping are as follows. In the absence of visual field defects and elevated IOP, clinicians must consider physiologic cupping. A majority of healthy adult eyes obey the isn't rule of neuroretinal rim thickness configuration, inferior thickness greater than superior, greater than nasal, greater than temporal, or its variant, the IST rule. Violation of these rules should raise suspicion of an abnormal disc. It's important to remember, however, that large optic nerves often violate the isn't rule. A large physiologic cup is frequently associated with an overall large disc so it's important for clinicians to take disc size into consideration. Eyes with physiologic cupping should not demonstrate other glaucomatous disc changes, such as focal thinning or notching, retinal nerve fiber layer defects, beta zone peripapillary atrophy, or disc hemorrhage. 
Finally, physiologic cupping does not produce repeatable visual field defects characteristic of glaucoma. Pathologic non-glaucomatous cupping may be caused by a variety of optic nerve and retinal conditions that must be considered during the differential diagnosis, particularly when the IOP is normal. Anterior ischemic optic neuropathy, and less commonly posterior ischemic optic neuropathy, may cause progressive cupping that mimics that seen in glaucoma. Patients may also present with visual field defects that respect the horizontal midline and that may be similar in appearance to glaucomatous visual field defects. Non-arteritic AION is an infrequent cause of cupping and can typically be distinguished from glaucoma by a small optic disc with a small cup or no cup. Arteritic AION, on the other hand, may cause cupping in up to half of cases. Patients with both types of ischemic optic neuropathy usually present with acute loss of vision, helping to differentiate AION from glaucoma. In traumatic optic neuropathy, the clinician should be able to elicit a history of blunt ocular trauma and may see other evidence of trauma such as an iris sphincter tear, traumatic cataract, and or angle recession. Hereditary optic neuropathies that may cause cupping include Lieber hereditary optic neuropathy and dominant optic atrophy. Lieber hereditary optic neuropathy tends to present with bilateral diffuse cupping, pallor of the entire disc, and central visual field defects. Dominant optic atrophy tends to produce moderate to severe excavation of the disc, pallor on the temporal side of the disc, and a loss of RNFL in the papillomacular temporal region helping to distinguish this condition from glaucoma. Hereditary optic neuropathies typically manifest as progressive vision loss in young patients, and there may be a family history suggestive of a hereditary etiology. Rarely, compression of the anterior visual pathway can cause optic disc cupping that mimics glaucoma. Aneurysm of the small intracranial portion of the internal carotid artery has been reported to cause cupping as well as visual field defects similar to those seen in glaucoma. Likewise, compressive tumors can cause progressive cupping and visual field defects that can be difficult to differentiate from glaucoma. In the case of compressive lesions, there is usually optic disc pallor in addition to cupping, and clinicians may be able to uncover a history of recent or escalating headache or other neurologic symptoms in addition to progressive vision loss. Lesions of the posterior visual pathway, at or posterior to the optic chiasm, may rarely present with cupping, but the visual field defects associated with these types of lesions typically respect the vertical rather than the horizontal midline. Patients in the acute phase of branch retinal artery occlusion often present with clinical findings such as acute vision loss, retinal edema, and visible emboli. After the acute phase, reperfusion of the retina occurs and there may be little evidence of the occlusion. Optic disc cupping may subsequently occur long after the acute event and a residual visual field defect may look similar to one caused by glaucoma. OCT imaging can be helpful in the differential diagnosis. In the acute phase of BRAO, there is retinal thickening without intraretinal spaces. In the chronic phase, there is a characteristic inner retinal thinning that is not seen with glaucoma. It has been estimated that up to 20% of non-glaucomatous cupping has been misdiagnosed and treated as glaucoma. A number of clinical features may assist clinicians with the diagnosis. The risk of developing glaucoma increases with age. Optic disc cupping in patients younger than 50 years old should raise suspicion for a non-glaucomatous etiology. 
Visual acuity loss is more common in patients with non-glaucomatous cupping than in those with glaucoma. In ischemic optic neuropathy and branch retinal artery occlusion, vision loss is typically acute. It may be more gradual in patients with hereditary or compressive optic neuropathies. Glaucoma typically spares the papillomacular bundle, and patients usually retain good visual acuity until the disease reaches an advanced stage. Similarly, acquired dyschromatopsia is expected in ischemic and hereditary optic neuropathies, but not in glaucoma. Several features of the neuroretinal rim and nerve fiber layer can help clinicians differentiate non-glaucomatous from glaucomatous cupping of the optic disc. Pallor of the residual neuroretinal rim is not consistent with a glaucoma diagnosis, but is a common feature in non-glaucomatous cupping. In fact, pallor of the neuroretinal rim is 94% specific in predicting non-glaucomatous cupping. In addition, non-glaucomatous cupping tends to cause diffuse or generalized cupping or focal temporal excavation, whereas glaucomatous cupping causes more localized or focal defects superiorly and inferiorly. The presence of notching or the complete obliteration of the neuroretinal rim is highly specific to glaucoma. Another highly specific sign of glaucomatous cupping is the presence of a hemorrhage on the optic disc. The visual field defects associated with glaucoma show a high degree of correlation with the appearance of the optic disc. In other words, inferior rim loss correlates with superior visual field loss and vice versa. The visual field defects associated with non-glaucomatous cupping do not correlate as well with the disc appearance and may be more central. Any visual field defect that respects the vertical midline is highly suspicious for a non-glaucomatous etiology. Optometrist use of OCT imaging has increased significantly during the past two decades. There is no doubt that this technology has improved clinicians' ability to detect early glaucomatous retinal nerve fiber layer loss, but it is important to bear in mind that not all nerve fiber layer defects seen on OCT are caused by glaucoma. RNFL thinning can occur as the end result of any optic neuropathy. In addition to the optic neuropathies mentioned earlier, optic neuritis, multiple sclerosis, and neurodegenerative disorders such as Alzheimer's disease, dementia, and Parkinson's disease may cause RNFL loss seen on OCT. When not accompanied by cupping, RNFL loss should be considered highly suspicious for a non-glaucomatous etiology. Temporal or papillomacular bundle RNFL loss is also highly specific for a non-glaucomatous etiology. Comparing OCT findings, Fard and colleagues found that the anterior laminar depth was greater and the lamina cribrosa was thinner in glaucomatous compared to non-glaucomatous cupping. This finding, however, is not part of a typical glaucoma scan protocol and may have limited clinical usefulness. Finally, clinicians should be aware of so-called red disease, false positives on the RNFL OCT printout that represent a deviation from the normative database but do not represent true disease. In summary, the diagnosis of glaucoma is often straightforward. When patients present with optic disc cupping but not elevated IOP, however, clinicians should be alert for masqueraders. Young age, pallor of the disc, loss of visual acuity and color vision, and a poor correlation between optic nerve and visual field findings are suggestive of a condition other than glaucoma. So we just heard about when the diagnosis is not glaucoma, but what about when glaucoma coexists with another condition, specifically dry eye? 
The two can overlap. And next up is Dr. Leslie O'Dell, who aside from being co-chief medical editor of Modern Optometry, is also an optometrist at the Dry Eye Center of Pennsylvania at Wheatland Eye Care in Manchester, Pennsylvania. Here she is on how to manage patients who need to be treated for both conditions concomitantly. Glaucoma and dry eye disease are each chronic and multifactorial in nature, and management of each condition can present many challenges, including patients' adherence to medications, patients' continued motivation to manage their disease, and healthcare costs. So what happens when these two exist concurrently? Studies have found that 60% of patients treated for open-angle glaucoma or ocular hypertension also experience symptoms of DED, dry eye disease. This comorbidity can complicate the treatment of glaucoma, as damage to the ocular surface from DED has the potential to reduce patients' adherence to medical treatment for their glaucoma and reduce their quality of life and vision. When asked about dry eye symptoms, 59% of patients with glaucoma reported symptoms in at least one eye, and 27% of patients reported severe symptoms. That's one in every three patients with glaucoma reporting severe symptoms of DED when asked. If we're not asking our glaucoma patients whether they experience dry eye symptoms, we may not be aware if they are affected by DED, and if so, on what level. When investigators looked at clinical signs of dry eye disease in patients with glaucoma, they found conjunctival and corneal staining in 22% and abnormal tear breakup time in 78%, with 65% displaying severe tear breakup times. Schirmer scores were reduced in 61% of patients in at least one eye, with severe deficiency in about 35% of patients. Remember, glaucoma patients have 22% lower basal tear turnover compared to normal physiological, increasing their risk for dry eye even before their glaucoma treatment begins. Compounding this with a reduction in Schirmer scores in one out of every three patients we treat for glaucoma, it's a recipe for dry eye disease. Other risk factors for dry eye disease include the number of medications a patient uses to treat his or her glaucoma, the duration of treatment, and the preservative systems in the medications, as well as their active ingredients. The medications considered as first-line therapy for glaucoma management because of their once-daily dosing schedule and effectiveness, the prostaglandin analogs, can also increase meibomian gland dysfunction. Beta blockers, another mainstay, can decrease the aqueous layer of the tear film. Failure to treat the underlying dry eye disease in our glaucoma patients can negatively affect these patients' quality of life and their adherence to their sight-saving glaucoma therapies. Ocular side effects of these medications, stinging, burning, itching, redness, etc., pose significant barriers to patient adherence. Poor adherence increases the risk for glaucoma progression. Further, glaucoma tests such as visual fields have been shown to be unreliable when dry eye is not properly treated. Due to the risks of these negative impacts on patients' adherence and therefore their quality of life, it is imperative to evaluate glaucoma patients for dry eye disease before initiating therapy with topical glaucoma medications. This can be done simply with an in-office questionnaire such as the standard patient evaluation of eye dryness, speed, 
or the Ocular Surface Disease Index, OSDI, and the use of vital dyes looking for corneal and conjunctival staining or, or rapid tear breakup time. Tear fi film osmolarity is also important if you have access to point-of-care testing in your clinic. If dry eye disease is present, treat it along with your patient's glaucoma. Start early with anti-inflammatory medications such as Restasis, Sequa, Zydra. They can help combat the inflammation associated with dry eye disease. Remember also to examine the lid margins and assess the structure and function of the meibomian glands. Meibomian gland clearing treatments such as the Lipiflow thermal pulsation system, the tear care system, the Ilux MGD treatment device, or intense pulse light can positively affect the tear film stability and patient symptoms. If the patient does not have dry eye disease at the start of glaucoma management, be sure to continue to look for the signs and symptoms as you see the patient back over the next several months to years. Commonly used glaucoma medications present known risks to the cornea and conjunctival health and the meibomian gland function. Studies have shown that the increased duration of medications used and the exposure to the preservatives can lead to dry eye disease. How can we effectively manage glaucoma and dry eye sim simultaneously? Whenever possible, reduce the number of glaucoma medications prescribed for a patient. For those with dry eye, start them on an anti-inflammatory medication early to reduce inflammation and the number of artificial tears needed during the day. Consider the benefits of oral omega-3 fish oil supplements for anti-inflammatory control and offer meibomian gland clearing treatments to aid with tear film stability. For the management of glaucoma in patients with dry eye, consider opting for selective laser trabeculoplasty as a first-line therapy rather than a topical drop. Research shows that this procedure can be as effective as medication. Microinvasive glaucoma surgery is another great option for patients with glaucoma who are undergoing cataract surgery, as these procedures can help to reduce the number of medications used per day. Note, however, that most of the devices are restricted to use in patients undergoing cataract surgery. If possible, start pharmaceutical treatments with a BAK-free medication. If you like the IOP-lowering ability of the prostaglandin analogs, consider one of the BAK-free formulations, such as Zelpros. Preservative-free alternatives, such as Ioptan, COSAP-P, and Timoptic in the Optidose formulation, Alpha-GAM-P and Travitan-Z with alternate preservative systems have been shown to be as effective as their BAK-preserved counterparts. Managing a patient with both dry eye disease and glaucoma is a marathon, not a sprint. Be diligent in your care, of patients with concomitant disease, remember that less can be more and be mindful of how many topical medications your patient needs to manage each disease on a daily basis. Don't forget to consider alternative treatments such as in-office procedures for meibomian gland dysfunction and surgical options for glaucoma management. Finally, monitor your glaucoma patients for dry eye disease over their lifetimes and employ management strategies that can help improve their quality of life and vision. Doctors Morelli and Odell share two great glaucoma articles, but maybe you're in the mood for something a bit different. Dr. Scott Schachter of Advanced Eye Care and Eyewear Gallery Optometry in Pismo Beach, California, ends this episode with a reading of his article on digital device use and vision in kids. 
Children use computers for schoolwork. They watch TV and play games. But is there a toll to pay for all that screen time? Let's hear what he has to say. Device use is on the rise globally, with mobile phone use in particular growing by 222% between 2013 and 2018. On average, children 8 to 12 years old in the United States are on devices 4 hours and 44 minutes per day, and teen use is an average of 7 hours and 22 minutes per day, in addition to time spent using screens for school or homework. With increased device use comes increased demand on the visual system. Digital eye strain can occur as a result of uncorrected refractive error, altered blinking pattern, closer working distance, accommodative and vergence anomalies, and excessive exposure to intense light. Cognitive demand causes a decrease in overall blink rate, and electronic device use causes an increase in partial blinks compared with other forms of media, such as a printed book. In this article, I examine the effect of digital device use on the vision of young patients and review some steps eye care providers can take to educate these patients and their parents in order to improve their quality of life. Incomplete blinking resulting from digital device use can lead to inferior corneal desiccation and staining and to desiccating stress, which causes hyperosmolarity leading to inflammation through dendritic cell activation. Incomplete blinking can also cause mybum to stagnate and thicken as it's not being forced out by a complete blink. This stasis can lead to obstruction, mybomian gland dysfunction, and gland atrophy. A 2016 study of 916 patients aged 7 to 12 years old found that 60 patients had both signs and symptoms of dry eye disease. When 30 of those 60 patients had their smartphones taken away for one month, both dry eye signs and symptoms improved. Let's take a look at the effects of excessive digital device use without proper counter-management tactics in a typical patient. Nathan, not his real name, is a 10-year-old patient who ended up in my exam chair recently at the behest of his mother because his eyes had been bothering him lately. I had him fill out the standardized patient evaluation of eye dryness or SPEED questionnaire as a starting point. Nathan scored an 11, meaning he's moderately symptomatic for dry eye disease. I asked him how and when his eyes bothered him and he replied that his eyes start burning and get watery when he's gaming. He says they start to bother him after he's been gaming for about 4 hours and they really get bad at about 8 hours. Nathan's visual acuity was 20-20 in each eye with a small hyperopic astigmatic correction. His ocular examination was positive for mild diffuse corneal staining. His tear film breakup time was 8 seconds in each eye. Mybum was clear and the mybomian glands were normal. My diagnosis for Nathan? Mild to moderate dry eye disease as a result of excessive digital device use. Before initiating treatment, I educated Nathan and his parents about the importance of decreasing screen time and advised him to practice the 20-20-20 rule. Every 20 minutes, look 20 feet away for 20 seconds. I prescribed a gamma-linolenic acid nutraceutical, half the adult dose, artificial tears to be used four times a day in each eye, and glasses with a blue light filter and an anti-reflective coating for viewing things at TV distance and closer. One month later, Nathan's speed score decreased from 11 to 4. 
No corneal staining was seen at the follow-up examination. Because he was symptomatic enough to instigate the office visit, he had readily complied with the treatment plan. Our young patients are most at risk from the potential long-term effects of extended digital device use. As eye care practitioners, how can we help this vulnerable population? Here are some tips. Hand out a validated symptom questionnaire such as speed or the five item dry eye questionnaire to all patients who are old enough to read and understand the questions. Although postmenopausal women may be the highest on the dry eye suspect list, think of all your patients as susceptible. It doesn't take long to instill a drop of fluorescein to evaluate tear film breakup time and corneal staining. Remember to give the dye one or two minutes for the staining to become visible. Meibomian gland dysfunction is arguably the most prevalent eye disease. Transillumination of the glands at the slit lamp is quick and easy, and numerous treatments are available. Better yet, invest in a mybographer and use it to image patients who are symptomatic. Have a treatment plan at the ready for your young patients with dry eye. The 2017 TFOS DUES 2 report is an excellent framework on which to base your treatment protocol. With the continued progression of technology, digital device use isn't going away anytime soon, if ever. Our worlds exist in our phones and computers, and we are now asking more of our eyes than ever. Therefore, it's increasingly important for eye care providers to educate parents and children about the effects of device use on ocular health and the steps they can take to minimize them. Some of you may have noticed that we have been doing a special COVID-19 series of the Mod Pod that broadcasts live twice a week via Modern Optometry's Facebook page as well as Zoom. Check in on Facebook for live updates on upcoming episodes. You can also watch replays of past broadcasts or catch up on COVID-19 breaking news at iwire.news forward slash COVID-19 forward slash. That concludes this regular episode of the Mod Pod. We'll be back with a new one next month. Hope you join us then. Thank you.